All right, have a seat. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6 for the next several weeks, uh, Lord willing. Uh, It's good to see you today. I want to just say welcome to everybody who's here, everybody who is uh, online. Um, I know there's a lot of people gone because it's fall break week, so uh, I'm really glad you're here. Probably more people here than I would have guessed even, but uh, uh, whether you're here or online, if you want to communicate something to us, you can text TLC guest or TLC decision to 94,000. There'll be something, a link that'll come to you that you can fill out. And uh, before we get into the message, I also want to uh, thank everybody for your encouragement and support. Uh, You know, with Robin being in the hospital this week, I just appreciate everyone's prayers and uh, those of you who have served us in practical ways. And then uh, at, at the top of the list, I want to say thank you to Pastor Philip for him jumping in at the last minute last Sunday and preaching my message and going ahead and getting this series started for us. And uh, he did a great job with that. So uh, hope you appreciate it. Let him know that you, you appreciate him doing that. All right, hopefully uh, I'll do a decent job preaching my own message this week so you don't want that to be the permanent plan uh, for how we do things. Um, All right, so uh, we're in this series called uh, The Fight of Your Life, and uh, I want to start today with with a question just to uh, ask you to think about something. If you ever, if you're uh, a believer and, uh, you know, if, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure where you stand on that uh, you'll hear through the course of this message actually how you enter into a relationship with Christ, and it's my hope and prayer that you will uh, uh, consider uh, taking that step today. But if you're a Christian, you ever thought about this? You ever wrestled with this? You ever thought, man, in, in light of everything the Bible says, in, in light of all the promises of God, in, in light of everything that Jesus has done for me, why does it seem so hard to live like a Christian sometimes? Apparently, I'm not the only one that's ever thought something like that, right? Um, You know, it's worse when you're a preacher because I think, man, uh, all the time I've spent studying the Bible, I've been to seminary, uh, you know, I've preached all these sermons. Why do I still struggle with sin and doubt and everything that I uh, struggle with? So I think that's a pretty normal question. Uh, I mean, if you've never thought that, maybe you ought to be up here teaching the message because you've got it all together. But uh, for the rest of us who are human, I, I think we, uh, we wrestle with this kind of thing. And uh, we need to understand that, that part of the answer to this question is the fact that we're in a war, we're in a fight, we're in a battle. The Bible teaches us that uh, we're in a, a battle with the world around us. And what I mean by the world in this, in, in this case, what the Bible means, is this world's system, this world's philosophy that stands in opposition to God and his truth that we're inundated with. Um, if you want to just, uh, you know, even if you want to see that illustrated, just go home this afternoon Watch a couple of hours of TV and just pay attention to the commercials. That's all you got to do. You know what the world is trying to get you to do right there. Uh, There's also, we're in a battle with our own flesh uh, and not, uh, well, maybe sometimes physically, but uh, not just physically, but the Bible uses the term flesh meaning our sin nature our own sinful, selfish desires. We're in in a battle with that, all of us, every day. But behind even those two things, 
We have a spiritual enemy that we're at war with. And I want to share part of a quote um, that, uh, from Tony Evans that, that Pastor Philip shared last week. And uh, he says the word heavenly places, and that's really important to understand the book of Ephesians. It's important to understand this passage. It's important to understand this entire uh, concept of spiritual warfare. When we talk about uh, heavenly places, it really means the spiritual realm because it could be talking about heaven. It could be talking about the angelic, but it also could be talking about Satan and demons. So he says the word heavenly places means the spiritual realm. And whatever is going on in your world, your life is rooted first in the spiritual realm, heavenly places. Listen, if you don't know how to navigate that realm, you can't fix this realm. Spiritual warfare can simply be defined as the conflict in the invisible realm that affects what's going on in the visible realm. It's the battle in the unseen that is responsible for the battle in the seen. So the big idea here is as we are talking about the fight of our life, that the real fight of our life is with our spiritual enemy, Satan. That there's a battle behind the battle. There's a fight behind the fight. There's a war behind the war. And and, and this is what I mean. Our text is going to say we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. See, we think our enemies are in front of us and around us. We, we think our enemies are people and circumstances. That's just the manifestation of our enemy. See, a lot of times our problem is, is we spend all of our lives trying to fix the fruit and never get to the root. And the root is always in the spiritual. The root is in the unseen. Here's what I mean. You may think right now your wife or your husband is your enemy. Maybe you had an argument on the way to church. Maybe you're struggling with something in your marriage. But I want you to understand that kind of thought, which is easy to have, is a lie from Satan. Because the reality is, you and your spouse are on the same team needing to realize that and fight your common enemy, Satan, who is here to kill, steal, and destroy your marriage. You may think you've got a rebellious teenager or or a wayward adult child or a crazy two-year-old that you can't do anything with. But that's not your enemy. Your enemy is our spiritual adversary. The, The word devil literally means adversary who is wanting to take and to destroy your kids and your family. You may think your battle, your fight right now is with your addiction But that's just the fruit. There's a root that your enemy is trying to hold you in chains and hold you in captivity. You may be fighting against some kind of emotion right now. That's not your real enemy. Your real enemy is Satan who is lying to you. You may think the battle's in your finances. You may think the battle is with your boss. But there's an enemy behind the enemy. There's a fight behind the fight. And that's what we have to get to because if we miss that, then once again, we're just left working with fruit. And, and the thing with, with fruit is... 
if you don't get to the root, it's never really going to change. It's like trying to, uh, you know, kill weeds. They keep coming back. It's going to keep coming back. Clinton Arnold has, has said this, and uh, Ellie, I'm kind of jumping into this in the middle, so I'll just apologize to, to you, but uh, he, he says we need to begin thinking about spiritual warfare in a broader way. Spiritual warfare is a way of characterizing our common struggle as Christians. Whether we want to think about it or not, the truth is that we all face an opponent who wants nothing more than to bring about our demise. We have an enemy who wants to blunt our every effort to share the good news of liberation with those still held in captivity. Spiritual warfare is all-encompassing. It touches every area of our lives, our families, our relationships, our church, our neighborhoods, our communities, our places of employment. There's virtually no part of our existence over which the evil one does not want to maintain or reassert his unhealthy and perverse influence. Conversely, Jesus longs to reign as Lord over every area of our lives. This is the locus of intense struggle for all believers. And it is a power struggle to which kingdom and source of power do we yield. And we have to answer that every day of, of our lives. We have to answer that every day of our lives. Who are we going to yield to? We're in a battle. We're in a fight. We're, we're in a war. See, I think a lot of times we look at the Christian life as more of a playground when we need to look at it as a battleground. We, we need to remember that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And I, I'm not talking about, you know, never having any fun, never relaxing, being so uptight that we can't enjoy life. But I think we tend to err on the other side of things with not taking this kind of stuff seriously enough. Satan wants to ruin your life. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to ruin this church and every other church. He wants to sow seeds of discord, of disunity, of doctrinal error, of mission drift, of stopping making the main thing, of making disciples of Christ the main thing, uh, of not walking by faith, of not uh, you know, going around the world and taking the gospel to as many people as we can. He wants you to waste your life. He wants you to miss your purpose. He wants you to be focused on yourself and yourself alone. He wants you to live with selfishness, making it all about you. He wants to ruin your life. You know, one way I think about this when it applies to church is like when you come to church or, you know, if you're online, when you participate online, you ever stop and think beforehand? Do you ever pray to this end? Do you, do you understand that like when we gather together, that eternity's at stake? Do you understand that there's a life and death and eternal life and death battle going on in some people's souls? I mean, do you understand what's at stake? You know, I mean, I'll be honest with you. Probably in the course of my life and my spiritual journey, I've been guilty of not thinking of spiritual warfare enough. 
This isn't something I've studied a lot. I've read one book on this subject before getting into preparing for this series. Uh, honestly, uh, probably the, the last few weeks has been, um, you know, God's done a lot in my life. This is something I needed to study. I, I tend to be logical and analytical and, you know, just put it in front of me and, you know, let's figure it out. This is the problem. Let's come up with a solution. Uh, the, you know, this is what God says to do. Let's go do it. But there's something fighting against that in every part of our lives. I mean, I, I don't know what you think about this, um, and, I, and I don't know 100% for sure what the answer is, but I know what I think. I, I didn't say this a couple of weeks ago as I was introducing the series just for time's sake, but I wanted to say it, but I've said it to people uh, personally. I've said it to our staff, some different people, but I've asked people to pray for me as uh, I preached this series because I knew that we were going to get hit. I don't think it's a coincidence that out of the blue, something probably related to a surgery that happened over six months ago, that the day before I start this series, that my wife ends up in the hospital. Satan hates us and wants to destroy us. Now, if we're going to get in a fight, it's helpful to know our enemy, to know our opponent, Right? I mean, if, if you decided to go out and uh, do an MMA fight, let, let's say I did. Let, let's, let's say uh, I decided, this even sounds weird to say, but let's say I'm going to go do an MMA fight. It would probably be helpful for me to know, uh, you know who I'm fighting, right? Because, um, you know, if, if, if I'm fighting a guy that weighs 120, I might be able to overpower him. If I'm fighting a guy that weighs about 350 and he's out of shape, I might be able to outrun him and wear him down and, and then do something, right? But uh, if I'm fighting a guy that's actually like an expert at this and he's trained and he's 225 and he's buff, I probably just better pray because I'm, I'm not sure what I'm doing with that, right? It, it's helpful to know your opponent. If, if you were a general in the military, you're probably not going to go into a battle without trying to know your opponent's location and size and strength of his army and what kind of equipment uh, that, that he has. Uh, there's a famous book about war written by Sun Tzu called The Art of War and that he said, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Now, let me paraphrase this and give us a spiritual application for the book of Ephesians, then we'll read our text. You know what a lot of Ephesians is about? A lot of what the, uh, particularly the first three chapters are about? It's about who we are in Christ. We've spent a long time, right? You can say amen there. Uh, we, we've spent a long time learning who we are in Christ. And what we've learned is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus, by his grace, through his resurrection power, he has made us alive in Christ and raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places with him, blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. That means that you and I don't really need to ask God 
God for anything. He deposited all into our account, all of Christ's riches into our account at the moment of salvation, which means that you and I have everything that we need to be and to do, everything that God wants us to be and to do through Jesus Christ because we're in him, we're in this union with him. This is who we are. We have been redeemed, we've been chosen, we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've been accepted, we have been adopted, we've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are now victorious, overcoming uh, children of God and uh, we can live a new life out of what Jesus has done for us. That's who we are. And Paul has been uh, through these first five and a half chapters saying, this is what Jesus did. And you as an individual, this is what he's done in, in putting together the church, Jews and Gentiles, and now this is how you live it out. You, you can live out what Jesus expects for you out of what Jesus has done for you. But now, as he comes to the end of the letter, and he's winding down, and he says here in verse 10, finally, my brethren, what he's saying is, you don't need to just know who you are. You need to know who your enemy is. You need to understand the battle that you're in. You need to understand that you're in the fight of your life. And this is your opponent. And so he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may stand against the wiles, the schemes, the tricks, the, the deceptions of the devil. Why? Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, considering this is our real opponent, considering this is the real nature of the battle, that the, the fight is not in the seen, that it's in the unseen, we need to take up spiritual armor, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Standing must be important. He says four times here to keep standing. In the analogy of a soldier, in the hand-to-hand -hand combat they would have been in, if you got knocked down, you were probably doomed. You better keep standing. Sometimes in life, Satan may be hitting you so hard that the most spiritual thing you can do is just keep standing. Sometimes in life, the circumstances may be so bad that the most spiritual thing you can do is just keep standing. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't, uh, don't quit. Hang on, but hang on to the Lord because he says it's in the strength and the power of his might. Keep standing. But we've got an enemy that's continually trying to knock us down. And like I said, we need to know our enemy. So what I want to do this morning is to point out to you from this text five characteristics of our spiritual enemy, uh, the devil. Two of them uh, will spend a fair amount of time on. Three will hit quickly. And, and some will pick up in more detail later in the series. But the first characteristic is this. Our enemy is spiritual. Once again, verse 12 says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. 
And so this is the real enemy, not people, not the circumstances of our lives. Now, let's think for a minute just biblically about kind of the biography of Satan, Satan's origin uh, story, so to speak. Who who is the devil according to Scripture? Well, the Bible uh, teaches us, you know, that God is eternal, that uh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is their creator. And, And at some point before he created this universe and before he uh, created Adam and Eve, that he created angels. And angels exist to worship and serve him, and eventually they were uh, to serve people. And one of those angels was called Lucifer, one of the, the, the leading angels in heaven. Uh, he may have been, there's some evidence that indicates that he may have been the worship leader in heaven. But, but at some point, and there's a lot of this that's maybe hard to understand, there's a lot of questions there, but at some point, it seems as though, uh, you know, Satan, Lucifer, uh, became proud, wanted to take God's place, rebelled against God, and a third of the angels went along with him, and so they fell as God kicked them out of heaven, and, and these are what's known as demons, fallen angels. And we see through the Bible, Satan and demons working in different ways in people's lives, um, ultimately trying to keep people from God, ultimately trying to overthrow God. They can't get to God directly, so they work uh, through uh, people. And I want you to understand, though, and and, and this is important, uh, that sometimes people think it's like, you know, you got God here and his polar opposite is Satan. It's the wrong way to look at it. They're not on the same plane. Satan is a created being. He's an angelic being. He's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. He, he knows a lot, but he's not all-knowing. He can move around in some kind of supernatural way, but he's not everywhere present. He can't read your mind. He can't be everywhere at the same time, but he has demons. And we see here, apparently, according to verse 12, there's some level of organization among those demons. And in Daniel chapter 10, it speaks of a demon as, as the prince of Persia. And I you know, I don't understand what all of that means, but we understand that there is an unseen conflict going on in the unseen realm, and, and Satan is organized, and he's working. The other thing that we have to understand is that God is sovereign, Satan is not, and Satan cannot do anything that God doesn't allow him to do, doesn't give him permission to do. In fact, we find at times in the Bible, Satan being used by God to do God's bidding. Now, once again, this raises questions as why is God allowing him to work? And of course, we know that ultimately he's doomed. He'll be damned to hell. This is for a season. It's all a part of fulfilling God's plan. But obviously, this raises some questions. And, and one question that people would have is like in 21st century, modern day America, like, do you really believe in the devil? A lot of people don't. I mean, there are people who might be like, man, you're just a backwoods, ignorant hick up here spouting this kind of stuff off. Or there may be people who think uh, I, I'm a little bit crazy for being up here saying this kind of thing. And uh, I may be a little crazy, but I don't know that this is the reason why. But I mean, I mean, th- this is a common thing. For example, uh, you know, the late great Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia in an interview with the New York Magazine a few years ago uh, was talking about heaven and hell. And kind of seeing the interviewer was a little incredulous about that, he decided to pipe, throw in also that, hey, I believe in the devil too. And the interviewer uh, responded and said, you do? And he said, of course, yeah, he's a real person. The interviewer says, have you seen evidence of the devil lately? 
said, so, you know, it's curious. In the Gospels, the devil is doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. It's because he's smart. So the interviewer says, well, so what's he doing now? What he's doing now is getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful that way. I mean, come on. That's the explanation for why there's not demonic possession all over the place. That always puzzled me. What happened to the devil, you know? He used to be all over the place. He used to be all over the New Testament. What happened to him? He got wilier. The interviewer says, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? And Justice Scalia said, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so removed from mainstream America that you're appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil. So if I'm crazy or an ignorant backwoods hick for believing in this, you know, if, if I'm in agreement with Justice Scalia, I'm probably okay with that, I think. But uh, you say, um, you know, why? Why don't you believe in, in, in a real devil? Let me just give you two quick reasons, two things to think about. First of all, there's just the reality of evil. And, and I know that there could be other explanations for where evil comes from. But understand, I, I believe in something called the correspondence view of truth. That means what is true is that which is really real. And so if something's true, it conforms to reality as we know it. How can we deny reality as we know it that this world is full of evil? Now, if you're an atheist, you can and should deny that because in order to say something is evil, you have to borrow a Christian category to actually even do that. Apart from a transcendent being with an absolute moral order, there is no logical basis to call anything evil. But if we recognize that there's evil in the world, and if you can't recognize there's evil in the world, uh, something is seriously wrong when you look at genocide, when you look at tra uh, with trafficking, murder, rape, abortion, all these kind of things, injustice, people being mistreated. But once again, if you're going to be logically consistent, that points you back to God. But the Bible would say that the source of this evil is ultimately in Satan. And so I'm going to accept that explanation uh, you know, maybe there's, once again, there's some other explanation for it, but it's got to come from somewhere. It kind of reminds me of a story I heard one time about a boxer. And, and so this guy was in, in, in a fight, in a boxing match, and he was getting killed. I mean, his opponent was destroying him. I mean, just beating him to death. And uh, he's about ready to give up, and he comes back to his corner during the break in between the rounds, and, and he's, he's saying to his trainer, man, this guy is killing me. This guy is killing me. And his trainer doesn't want him to give up. He's trying to give him a pep talk. He's like, what are you talking about? He's not even touching you. You're fine. He's not even touching you. And, and, and the boxer uh, says, well, the referee must be hitting me then because somebody's killing me. Uh, <laughs> it's coming from somewhere. Somebody's hitting us. But the ultimate reason that I believe in the devil is because there is ample historical evidence to demonstrate that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it verifies his claim to be the son of God. If Jesus is the risen son of God, then what he says is true. Jesus obviously believed in, encountered the devil. I don't think he was hallucinating. I don't think he's schizophrenic. Why? Because he rose from the dead. And my philosophy of life is, I'm gonna go with the guy who rose from the dead. So if Jesus believed in the devil, I believe in the devil because uh, Jesus, I think, is the one we can count on. I got more confidence in him than I do uh, 21st century psychiatrist. So in anything in life, it boils down to who you trust. Everything we do in life, we're living by faith. And I'm gonna live by faith in the Son of God. I'm gonna live by faith in the Word of God. So I believe that the devil is real. I believe that we have a spiritual enemy who's seeking to destroy us. That's number one. Number two, how's he doing that? Well, we need to see that our enemy is deceptive. He's deceptive. You should know this. You should memorize the, the, this statement. Satan's desire is to destroy you, and his method is to deceive you. Jesus called him the father of lies in John 8, 44. Now, we're going to get into this in a little more detail later in the message, but I want you to understand when it's all said and done, the weapon that Satan has against you is deception. That's why the end of verse 11 talks about the wiles of the devil, the schemes, the tricks, the deceptions of Satan. Now, I'm kind of dating myself here, but I have to tell you, when I read this verse, this is the phrase that usually pops into my mind. A wily coyote. <laughs> Remember wily coyote? If you're probably younger than 30, you need to look it up on YouTube. But uh, this, this was back in the day with Wiley Coyote, Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote trying to uh, trick the Roadrunner, trying to get the, you know, the Roadrunner. And, you know, he's always trying to trick him. It's always backfiring. You know, he's got this hotline to the Acme company. Even before Amazon, you know, he could get stuff delivered just like that. And he's got all this stuff. Uh, some of you are enjoying this. Some of you are looking like, what in the world is he talking about? But um, you know, but he was always trying to, to trick the roadrunner. That, that was his method. Okay, let me try a different illustration. Um, let me go back even farther. There's, um, uh, there's a Puritan who wrote a book about Satan. His name's Thomas Brooks. And he said this. He says, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. Satan's an expert fisherman. What do you do when you go fishing? That's exactly what you do, right? You present the bait, you hide the hook. What's the bait? It could be sex. It could be money, power, success, religion. He loves that bait. He'd love to bait you into being religious and moral to drag you all the way to hell by that hook. It could be pleasure. It could be fame, it could be relationships, anything that will hook us in. And listen, here's the thing. He's watching the game film of your life. He's like a football coach. He's studying you. He knows what you experienced as a child that you'll still carrying around with you today that he can use. He's a deceiver. He's the father of lies. That's his methodology. So our enemy's spiritual, our enemy's deceptive, our enemy's dangerous. Notice the beginning of verse 12. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, 
at first glance here, it may appear as though Paul is doing something that he was prone to do, and that's mixing his metaphors. Because he's using this metaphor, this analogy of a soldier. Could be the divine warrior of the Old Testament. Could be a Roman soldier that he's talking to as he's using this armor as an analogy. So, you know, it, it seems like he's talking about warfare, but then he throws in wrestling. And of course, you know, wrestling was a part uh, of, you know, the Olympic Games. It was a part of, you know, it was a part of their culture. It was something they did. So, uh, you know, think of more like amateur wrestling than WWF kind of thing. But, but wrestling was a very popular sport in that day and time. So why is he talking about wrestling? Well, I don't think that's exactly what he's doing. I think what he's talking about here is wrestling in the sense of soldiers in man-on-man, hand-to-hand, Life and death, struggle, combat. See, we tend to think in modern warfare of which you could be killed in a, in a battle from miles away. It's not how it worked in first century warfare. Um, you know, the Romans employed a, a military formation called a phalanx, very close quarters. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie 300, that's what a phalanx uh, is. And, uh, you know, they almost kind of hooked their shields together. But, you know, these armies would come together and, and it's in hand-to-hand combat. And so if the formation breaks, it's probably going to break down into some sort of a wrestling match. And whether you live or die uh, will depend on whether or not you can defeat an opponent in hand-to-hand combat. Here's what I thought about when I was studying this this week. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. But, uh, you know, the opening sequence of that where they're, uh, you know, storming the beach on D-Day is pretty much considered one of the greatest movie scenes of all time because of how realistic veterans say that it is. It was shot in, in a single uh, continuous shot is my understanding uh, of it. And um, basically um, what is, you know, you have these men, and, and to me it's just gut-wrenching, just, it's hard to just fathom the courage that it took for these men because, you know, some of them, even as the, the doors opened on the landing craft as they approached the beach, were getting, uh, you know, cut down. And, uh, you know, obviously the Germans are firing from the cliffs uh, above them uh, from a distance away, and it's just random. It's not like, you know, you can see something com- coming and, and, and dock, uh, duck or dodge, uh, you know, the bullets or that kind of thing. You know, you're just trying to get on the beach and find some cover and, you know, just just seeing it is, like I said, it's just kind of gut-wrenching to watch it. But then later in the movie, in the final climactic battle scene, there's what I think is an even more gut-wrenching scene. Because you have an American soldier in a room in a house that's been firing outside, but then you have some German soldiers who infiltrate the house. One of them gets killed, but one of them makes it up the steps. And they basically, uh, as he comes into the room, I guess they're out of ammo, and they throw their guns down, and they just run at each other and collide and begin to fight. Man to man, life or death, somebody's going to live somebody's going to die, struggle. 
And it goes on for a few minutes, cutting back and forth from that to scenes that are going on outside. It just this intense, uh, visceral, violent, hand-to-hand conflict as they go back and forth. One's on top of the other, the other's on top of the other. Eventually, uh, the German soldier gets the American soldier pinned down and is able to extricate his knife from his equipment, and he eventually stabs him to death. And the picture here in my mind is that not with a seen opponent, but with an unseen spiritual opponent in the spiritual realm, we are in life and death, man on man, uh, hand to hand combat, and somebody's going to live and somebody's going to die. That's the picture that I believe that God wants to imprint upon us today as to what's at stake. You're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. You're going to live a defeated life or you're going to live an abundant life. Your marriage is going to flourish in Christ or Satan's going to steal your marriage. Your kids are going to flourish in Christ or Satan's going to steal your kids away. And I could go on and on, but that's what is at stake. We have a dangerous enemy that we are in mortal combat with. And see, part of his deception he wants to blind you to the battle. If there was an army that invaded our shores, we'd all begin to live differently. There's an enemy that's trying to invade our lives, but I don't think a lot of times we live like it. He's dangerous. Number four, he's powerful. I mean, he talks about here rulers and principalities and and powers. And we see from other places in Scripture that Satan tempts and Satan attacks and Satan uh, influences and Satan in some cases can impart sickness and, uh, you know, people can be demon-possessed and we could go on and on and on, but There's something here you got to get, okay? And and this is going to flow into the last point, and this is the key to the whole message. But I'm going to give you a statement, and and, and you got to get it. And and, and I'll show you why I'm saying this biblically in just a second. But if you get this, it will set you free, and it will change your life. Here's the thing. If you're a Christian, if you are genuinely in Christ, Satan has power against you, but he doesn't have authority over you. There's a difference in power and authority. See, power is one thing, but authority is the right to use that power. Satan still has power, but he does not have the authority for that power to operate in your life unless you give it to him. See, here's the thing. Every day in our lives, let's go back to this heavenly places thing, to the spiritual realm thing. Every day in our lives, by the way that we think and by what we're trusting in and by the choices that we make, we're either letting hell into our lives or we're letting heaven into our lives. That's the root. 
The fruit's actually what's going on. The fruit's not really the problem. The fruit of your life is just telling you what you're letting into your life. If you wanna change the fruit, you gotta change the root of what you're letting in every day. If you're watching hell, your life's gonna turn into hell. If you're listening to hell, your life's gonna turn into hell. If you're believing hell, your life's gonna turn into hell. If you're hanging out with hell, your life's gonna turn into hell. You gotta stop what you're letting in your life if you want your life to change. It just doesn't magically, through hope and good luck and charms, happen. He's got power against you, but if you're in Christ, he doesn't have authority over you. But here's the other thing. If you're not in Christ, he has authority over you because you belong to him. You may not recognize that. You may be the greatest person around, but that's part of his deception. He'll love for you to be a great, awesome, moral, religious, philanthropic person all the way to hell. And listen, if that statement offends you, that's pretty good evidence that you're probably not even saved because if you are saved, you know that you're a sinner. You know that you belong to Satan and you know the only thing that set you free from his grasp was a greater power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He's got power against you, but he doesn't have authority over you. Think of it like this. You know, you've probably often heard it said, that the president of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. But he could go to North Korea and that doesn't mean anything in, uh, when he's there. He could go to China. It doesn't mean anything there. He'd go to the Soviet Union. If he goes and, and meets with, with Putin, it's not like he's going in there and like changing their laws and their policies and making things different in that country. Why? He's got power against those countries by coercion, by influence, by attack even maybe if necessary, but he doesn't have authority over them. Here's the deal. Satan has power against you if you're in Christ by influence or coercion or maybe attack, but he doesn't have authority over you. He can't make you do anything. Why? Because he may be a spiritual enemy, he may be a deceptive enemy, he may be a dangerous enemy, he may even be a powerful enemy, but the good news is, is he's also a defeated enemy. You see, that's, that's implied in this text because it tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But it's, it's made explicit elsewhere in, in Scripture because it says in Colossians 1.13 that he has delivered us from the power. And that's not the best translation. It literally means from the authority of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. You're in a different realm now. You're under a different authority now if you're in Christ. You're not under the authority of darkness. You're under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch much then as we, uh, as the children are partaking of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus in his death destroyed Satan and his works and his effects. Colossians 2.13 says, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the 
handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You're forgiven in Christ. But then notice this. It says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In other words, after the cross, Jesus and the angelic host went on a victory parade and declaring to the unseen powers and principalities and rulers of darkness what had just happened. See, Philip talked about this last week, but Satan thought he had won a great victory on the cross, but he was just a pawn in God's hand. You see, if you read through the entire Old Testament, it looks like God and Satan have been playing uh, uh, chess the whole time. There's like move, counter move, move, counter move. But on the cross and in his resurrection, God said, checkmate, the victory has, has been won and Jesus went on this victory parade and he declared that. And do you understand every time we come together and worship and we really worship God and we praise the name of Jesus Christ and we declare his victory and we sing about his death, burial, and resurrection that we are declaring to the, prince, to the principalities and the powers that Jesus has won and we stand in him and he's victorious and he's glorious and he's awesome and he's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. But there's one other thing I want you to notice about this verse. There's a particular word here, disarmed. He disarmed principalities and powers. Remember on the Andy Griffith show when uh, Barney would do something silly with his gun? What would Andy do? He'd take his bullet, right? He'd take his bullet. Do you understand when Jesus died on the cross, he took all of Satan's bullets. He disarmed him. So here's the thing. Satan's only power against us in Christ is waving an empty gun at us. He can lie. He can intimidate. But he doesn't have any authority over us. He's been disarmed. Now that you know that, you got to believe that and you got to act on that. I mean, if somebody came up to you and stuck a gun in your stomach and, and said, give me all your money, you're probably giving them the money. But if you knew, if, if you knew that, that there were no bullets in that gun, I'm punching him in the mouth and I'm taking his gun from him because that gun cannot do anything to me. Listen, it's time for us to punch Satan in the mouth and take his gun and say, you have no authority over me. I'm standing on the truth of God. I'm not letting hell into my life anymore. I'm standing strong in the Lord and his might. I'm putting on the armor of God. I am in Christ and I'm gonna let Christ live through me and be in control of me. I'm gonna stand under his authority and live the life that he wants me to live. That's what he's calling us to do today. I want to close by going back to Ephesians chapter 2 for a minute and, and then telling you a story. In Ephesians chapter 2, God's word says this. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Remember, our enemy of the world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? That's Satan, the world, the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, the trifecta of our spiritual enemies, the world, the devil, and the flesh. And apart from Christ, we're under control of all three. It says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This is our spiritual bi biography. But the beginning of verse four gives maybe the two greatest words in the Bible, but God. This is who we were, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, because it has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I started uh, preaching shortly after I turned 19. I turned 50 a couple uh, months ago. So I've been preaching for about 31 years now. I've been married for 30 years. And one of the first things that Robin and I did together in ministry is uh, we were youth ministers at Montview Baptist Church. And so Robin and I got married after my sophomore year in college. And I don't remember if this is when I was a junior or a, or a senior. I got a call one day. And uh, it was from, I don't remember if it was from a guidance counselor or an assistant principal at one of the middle schools in, in Hamblin County. I mean, there was a guidance counselor and an assistant principal both involved in this. But one of them uh, called me, and remember, I'm like 20, 21 years old, and said that, I don't think this would ever happen today, but this, this happened, said, we have a student here who has been dabbling in Satanism. He was actually in our youth group. We want you to come and talk to him. Uh, we don't know what to do. Like at 20, I knew what to do, but uh, I, 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 I went up there. And so, um, you know, I talked to the young man and listened to him as he shared, uh, you know, what he had been messing around with and that kind of thing. And uh, about all I knew to do, which is good because it's the best thing I could have done, was to share the gospel with him. And so, uh, kneeling down at a couch in a guidance counselor's office in a public school this young man committed his life to Christ. And uh, after that, we left school and we went to his house. And so he started getting out Ouija boards, pentagrams that he had drawn, Bibles that he had carved pentagrams into, and just a list of things. And we took those into his yard and burned them for him to take a step of repentance and renounce the working of Satan in his life. And um, what I'm saying today is this. I don't care if you're good dead or bad dead. I don't care if you're immoral, if you're moral dead or immoral dead. Apart from Christ, you're dead. I mean, he had been in church, probably a professing Christian, if I remember correctly. But if Jesus isn't Lord, you're opening the door for Satan to manifest in your life. It may not be as overt as that. 
He's happy for it to be that way. He's happy for it to be real subtle as long as he's deceiving you. Because if he's deceiving you, he's ultimately destroying you. And so what I'm saying is this. If you're not in Christ, you need to give your life to him, to submit to him, to trust him, to let him be your Lord, to come under his authority so that Satan's authority can be broken in your life. And then you need to repent of sin, renounce Satan's works, and all of us every day need to stand in God's strength, put on the armor of God, stop letting hell into our lives, and begin to let heaven in our lives. By praying and spending time with God and watching what we listen to and watch and who we hang around with. See, we think of spiritual warfare as some kind of airy-fairy thing. It's kind of way more practical than we would ever imagine it to be because it's just simply the manifestation in the physical of what's going on in the spiritual. Who's your Lord today? We you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father God, I, I pray right now in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would set us free, that you would change our lives. God, I ask that your spirit, God, would speak and move and work right now. God, I pray against Satan's lies and deceptions. God, fill us with your truth. God, I pray that you would regenerate hearts that you would change us from the inside out. I want to ask you, what's God saying to you right now? What do you need to do with this? Maybe there's somebody that what you need is to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Once again, I'm not asking even what you believe. I'm not asking if you're a church member, how good of a person you are, anything like that. I'm asking you to recognize that you're a sinner. That apart from Christ, even if you're a good person outwardly, that Satan still has authority in your life. That that needs to be broken, that you need a new heart, that you need to change. And only Jesus can bring that about. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? If that's the case, right now, will you call on his name? Will you ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to come into your life? Is there anyone with their heads bowed and their eyes closed that right now you just raise your hand and say, that's me. I need to give my life to Christ right now. How about if you're a Christian? Have you been given Satan the freedom to operate in your life? Is there a door you need to close? Is there a lie you're believing? Are you spending time with God? Is there sin in your life that you're hiding? You know, Satan operates in the darkness. If you want freedom, bring it into the light. Is there somebody you need to forgive? If you go back to Ephesians chapter four, you find that uh, unforgiveness, bitterness is a doorway to the demonic. 
if there's, if there's a person that you're just bitter towards, you're giving Satan a foothold, a base of operations in your life. Renounce his works, repent. Ask God to fill you with his spirit. Look to the cross. Stand in the fact that his authority over you was broken. Stand in the lordship of Jesus Christ today. Jesus, we praise your great name for the victory that you have won. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for forgiving us through the cross. We thank you for giving us new life through your resurrection. We thank you that we are seated in heavenly places with you by your spirit. Help us to live like it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.